G'day, g'day, and welcome back to another episode of The Experience. By now, I hope you know that it's the captain of the ship, your boy behind the mic, Bradley J. Driver. And it's always a pleasure to be here in The Experience HQ. It's been a couple of weeks now, getting very cozy in here and loving having my guests either face-to-face or like we are today, across the screen on Zoom. And today's guest is a very exciting one because as I was saying to her in today's little bit of pre-chat and pre-ramble, She's the first female guest in a couple of weeks. So ladies, get excited because I know you've all been messaging me saying you'd love more female guests. So I'm delivering. Here we are. And this lady deserves an incredible intro. She burst into the fitness scene five years ago as a bodybuilder. And more recently in the last two years has transitioned more so towards the mental peak fitness, mental health, studying and putting a lot of work into her clients with the psychological side of things, which we all know is so important and potentially even more important than the way you look after your body physically. So I'm very excited to be here. So from your homey car or wherever you are, give a very, very warm welcome to the one, the only, the very lovely Nikki Kassa. How are you, Nikki? <laughs> what an intro. Hey, Bradley, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's my absolute pleasure. You're someone who I guess I come across in the last couple of weeks or more so the last month and a bit. And as soon as I come across you, you've got a very bright and bubbly personality that shines through the screen on socials. And I found myself scrolling through and having a look at all the amazing things you're doing. And I thought you'd be a great guest to have on here because if anyone's listened to, you know, I think you'll be episode 79 of the experience, which is exciting. If you've listened to 78 of the previous or a few of the previous as our listeners and viewers, I'm sure you know that we always tend to come back to sort of that mental peak performance and fitness stuff that I think is so important in not just my life, but everyone's life to get the most out of every day, to get the most out of your business or career ventures, to get the most out of just living life to the fullest. And I'm really excited to talk to you about all those things today and your amazing journey along the way. But I believe every good story starts with a bit of a background, a bit of an understanding of where you come from and why you're sitting in front of us sharing this message today. So do you mind giving us a bit of an idea of who you are? Sure. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I must say that uh, looking at your your space and the messages that you're sharing with the world and, and putting out there really resonated with me. And um, I'm very particular with the types of podcasts, uh, interviews that I do, because, you know, that message is is really uh, important and can have such a huge catalyst for change in people's lives. Um, so I really resonated with everything that you share, um, both on your socials, but on this podcast in particular. Um, Thank you so, so much. I'll dive, in, I'll dive into uh, a little bit with where I actually grew up because I'm not actually originally from Sydney. I'm uh, from Adelaide and I grew up there um, mainly wanting to do dancing um, and going to be a dance teacher and I thought that was where I saw my career going, per se. And then four years ago, um, I experienced a really traumatic event. Um, and that really decided, was a deciding point for me with where I wanted that, that future to go. Um, and it really did shift that whole trajectory for me. Um, so since then, I immersed myself into, um, into bodybuilding. I was already training at that stage, but uh, not really committed to it. Um, so I went on to do bodybuilding, earned my pro card, uh, moved here to Sydney, 
um, and started to explore more about uh, mind-body approaches in particular, um, a lot of neuroscience approaches, looking at our nervous systems um, after something like a traumatic event and how they go through survival. Um, and it's really led me to where I am now as a mind-body practitioner. That's an amazing little recap and, and very well recapped. You've done a very good job there. It's usually hard for people to recap their stories so well, but you've done a great job. And I guess I want to go back to one point in that little journey there that you just discussed. And I know you're big on talking about your past trauma because you believe it will allow you to help the people that are within your your coaching group, but also within the connection and the circle that follow you around social and, and the life you live. Do you mind touching on those traumatic experiences a little bit and helping us understand what happened? Yeah, of course. So I have to take you back a little bit further than what happened four years ago. And just for, you know, the women out there listening as well, just a bit of a trigger warning for anyone who's experienced sexual assault. So when I was a little girl, um, I was sexually assaulted by three men and I was only 14 at the time. And I really found it hard to open up about that. I stayed silent, um, mainly because I felt as if my power was taken from me. And I lost that sense of having my voice um, and being able to say no. Uh, I was very scared to be judged. And you know, who would believe a 14 year old, right? Would they blame me? Would they say it was my fault? And so I stayed silent about it. And I think it's really important to share this, Bradley, especially given how recent a lot of women have begun to open up about, you know, sexual harassment or assault or rape. And it can be quite a delicate topic. And, you know, unfortunately, it does happen to women and can even happen to young teenagers as well. Of course. Can I interject quickly there? And like at any stage of you say, look, that's too personal. And I don't want to answer those questions, you know, feel free to, to tell me. I want to make sure that you're completely comfortable throughout the course of this. But with those three men that sexually assaulted you when you were 14, did you know those people or were they people that were foreign to you? So I was dating a older gentleman at the time, would have been three or four years older than me. And we had gone to his friend's house and at one stage throughout the, the night, he'd left. And I, I didn't know where he'd gone. I thought maybe he went out to go and get more alcohol or food or whatever it was, um, but he never came back. Okay, so, I'm really sorry yeah, to hear that. And so that's obviously led on to then another traumatic experience in, I think you said the past four years? Yeah, so just to um to share something really important before i uh, continue on with that i think it's really important as we open up discussions like this especially for anyone who might be listening whether that is a man or a woman um, who might be experiencing something similar that might not feel safe to open up or share in the ways that i didn't when i was younger and i certainly think that Although having conversations like this, it doesn't condone like what those men did. I also don't think it's important to share this to create shame for men. You know, I don't think it's helpful to create uh, a resource like that. Uh, however, I do see a huge opportunity to connect with those types of, um, again, men and women who might have their own experience in this or might not be able to make sense of it all. 
And so as you, if you have had your own experience, I think the number one thing you can do is look for a support network after a traumatic event like that and finding some sort of safety and security, whether that's with your friends, your family, maybe a mentor, or perhaps even professional support where you can begin to create pathways for feeling safe enough to open up about it, knowing that it wasn't your fault. And that allows you to create some pathways for healing, for regulation in your system, um, and as well, integration for the experience as well. Is there any support networks that you'd recommend people reaching out to? Like, are there any organisations as such? Yeah, of course there are. So you can go online and there's a whole heap of organisations out there. Um, I honestly couldn't give you any off the top of my head because in my own healing experience, I work directly face-to-face with therapists and and psychologists. Um, For me, opening up, I felt a lot safer doing that one-on-one with a therapist. Um, But I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, helplines where you can call up um, and get advice, whether that's to just share or whether to know where you can go from there. And perhaps we can leave some links um, in the bio, in the podcast that might be helpful for people listening. Yeah, definitely. We can most certainly do that. And and I was actually going to suggest we'll um, we'll throw those in there when the show goes out. And of course, if anyone... Um, feels like they need that information please feel comfortable using it and, and like Nikki said it's definitely not something that should be um, there shouldn't be any stigmas around it or any reason for you to feel as though you shouldn't be reaching out to those people it's definitely worth having the conversation that may not be necessary as opposed to sitting there and thinking the conversation isn't necessary where it could have mm-hmm. been very helpful so for you Nikki I think you know I've spoken to a few people who have specialize in mental health and and run organizations that work with people struggling with mental health issues or traumatic past experiences and there seems to be this real importance and I think rightfully so around whilst at the time I'm sure when that trauma was happening your visits to a psychologist or therapist were more regular what's the importance on even now years on from these events still checking in from time to time. Is that something you do? Is it something you feel is necessary or should even be common practice for most people? Yes. So we have something within our nervous system that keeps us safe after a traumatic experience. Um, There are five survival pathways, which I want to talk about um, towards the end of today's podcast. Um, But what the mind likes to do, the brain, to keep us safe is it stores traumatic experience in the form of an implicit or an explicit memory. And so those memories there, either if they're too traumatic, they're going to be stored within that memory to keep you safe from that. So an implicit memory would be stored deep within the subconscious because it might be too much for you to re-experience. Whereas an explicit memory would be um, when I was 14, this thing happened. Whereas an implicit would be more around what that felt like for you, how you experienced it, what you saw, how that felt. And so by doing ongoing um, healing, whether that's with a therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, psychotherapist, counsellor, it allows you to create little glimmers And I mean little glimmers because sometimes slower 
is a lot safer for a nervous system. So it creates little glimmers for you to open up around these memories and these experiences to again, integrate them and allow you to mm. either normalize and make sense of it all, or then create some um, coping mechanisms to ensure that you do feel safe and you don't go into relationships um, with you know, a traumatic abandonment or, or um, painful memories that are resurfacing for you. Would that be similar to, you know, because excuse my, I guess, ignorance and, and lack of education around this topic. It's not something I've had to deal with personally. So, <clears throat> which is, you know, I feel very grateful and very lucky for. However, I've, I've heard a lot and, and looked into a lot of PTSD stuff and you, is, would those implicit memories and those things that tend to come out and, and be a little bit raw as you speak to a therapist, is that similar to what PTSD sufferers would have where they're recalling those events that maybe even things they forgot that actually happened or moments they'd forgotten within those traumatic experiences? Yeah, and in a lot of ways, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and complex uh, PTSD, um, a lot of survivors, um, when we look at that, we're looking at well, what's the brain is doing there, which is surviving from an experience that felt yeah. Um, life-threatening and yes. I say that because sometimes whether it's uh, you felt that you were going to you know be in a situation where your life was taken from you or whether that was that something that was physically happening like a per se a war veteran the experience of the traumatic uh, the trauma still feels very real and so in some ways yeah whether it's um, uh, PTSD complex PTSD um, whether it's just some childhood wounds that came up for you, maybe around when your parents got divorced, um, there's always going to be a part of your brain that wants to protect you from that if it felt very traumatic. Of course. And for you, Nikki, like how important was not only dealing with these things, but getting fresh starts and new beginnings for yourself? Because you speak about your move from Adelaide to Sydney. And is that something that your career brought you this way? Is it something that it was just pure adventure and a new challenge? Or was that important to come and get a fresh new start and, and lay new foundations for the life ahead? Well, this all happened after what happened four years ago okay. to me. And I know everyone's probably sitting in the edge of their seats with anticipation because I haven't, <laughs> I haven't shared it just yet. So in 2017, I went on a holiday to Bali with a with a six friends of mine and we were there for about 10 days and halfway through what was supposed to be a really fun trip um, it quickly turned really bad when my drink was spiked where um, while we were staying in the villa and I didn't pass out I had you know full functions of my body but my state of mind um, became really disoriented and because we were in a villa and we hadn't gone to a club or a bar or, or a restaurant, this paranoia of not knowing how this happened heightened mm. the trip that I was in and I became stuck in it. I couldn't get myself out of this, this drug trip that I was in. Yeah, well, so is that, is that something that for you personally, were, were you able to pretty quickly pick up that something was wrong? 
Well, I didn't know at first because I was so confused around what have I eaten? What have I, I had to drink today? Okay, so I've had um, the milkshake, I've had the, the zucchini salad, you know, what, what else? And so at first I wasn't sure. And I thought maybe I was just feeling anxious. Maybe I hadn't had enough water for the day. And it actually took me a good six, seven hours before I was like, okay, like there's something going on. I feel super weird. And it wasn't until then that I started to try and speak up to say, I feel weird. Mm. Um, and I was, I was quite gaslighted. You're fine. Don't be paranoid. Don't worry about it. Um, sort of thing, which just exacerbated everything because I felt that nobody understood. Was there any, I guess, fear in that moment, knowing that that's happened with inside your villa means that it's someone who's broken your trust. Mm. Is there any fear that am I speaking out to the wrong people? Am I speaking out to people I can't trust? You know, how do you deal with that internally? Well, in a lot of ways, I had to deal with it internally because when I tried to speak up, it was like fingers were pointed back at me as, you know, you're being crazy and you need to snap out of it. And it's like telling someone who's having an an anxiety attack to snap out of it. No, you can't. There's emotional flooding in your nervous system. You can't just snap out of something like that. Yeah. So there was a lot of fear because we were on a small island. We were on Gillity Island. There was no motorized vehicles. There was no hospitals. Um, The locals hardly spoke English. Um, And normally when you have, you know, a trip like that, whether it's psychedelic or something else, it can last anywhere from, you know, an hour up to 10 hours before it starts to wear off. Um, And this trip that I got stuck in, I couldn't get out of lasted for three days. Oh my God. Wow. Okay. So that's super intense. And at the time that this happened, so you're in the villa, was this like a villa party? Was this just you and your friends? Like what's the situation sort of sort of paint a picture of that scene for us? Yeah. So it was just the six of us. And I mean, look, there's not a lot of rules in Bali. So if you wanted to get mushroom cocktails brought to the villa, on Gilly Tea Island, where mushrooms are quite known, you can. Yeah. Right? Okay. And so my first thought was, uh, maybe the mushroom cocktails, everyone got them instead of just the people who had ordered them. Um, and that was that's the only rational explanation I could think of. The other thought was maybe the restaurant put some food in uh, something in my food. But then I thought, oh, I don't know if that would come from the staff. It, it didn't seem very rational. So in, in a lot of ways, Bradley, I still don't know. Um, but you can only assume that, you know, they wanted everyone to have fun. And what was the harm in that, right? Until there was harm in it, right? Yeah. And throughout the course of those three days, what were the consequences of the trip that you were in? Because I can imagine, like as someone, I sit here as someone who, you know, I don't drink because I've got liver disease, but got a lot of people that drink around me. Like, I'm, you know, I'm 25 or nearly 25. And so I experienced drinking from the outside, looking towards my mates and the people around me as someone who's never participated in drugs. I don't know that feeling either. So for me to sit there and think, okay, I know how much I like to be in control of my body. I'm a bit of a control freak in that way. I can't imagine what it would feel like to almost feel as though you don't have any control at all 
And I'm sure that's probably what you felt. What are the consequences of that feeling throughout the course of 72 hours? Yeah, I mean, you can only start to use your imagination to know what that was like. Yeah. Most of the time when I look back at it, Bradley, one of the biggest things that really was a consequence for me was that I was alone and I just didn't have the help. And it was less to do with what happened to me and more to do with what didn't happen, where I didn't feel safe, I didn't feel looked after, I didn't know who I could trust, who I could go to. Mm. Um, I was on the other side of, like I was overseas, I couldn't just get on a, on a, on a bus or a flight or a taxi or an Uber and just go home. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until uh, 24 hours later when we got back to the main island in Bali where I really tried to speak up and say, I don't feel right, there's something wrong. Um, you know, I need to go to a clinic, I need to go to a hospital. And the response that I got from my friends at the time was, Nikki, you're ruining our holiday. Either you need to leave this villa or we're leaving you. And I was standing there just gobsmacked of like, are these my friends? is this actually happening or am I also hallucinating this? Because I was so shocked of how is it that I'm feeling so uh, afraid to speak up and also the response that I was getting from them, you know, and I, Bradley, you're quite a, a, a very, um, you know, grounded moral person. And I could imagine for you and just like any of my friends, if they were in that situation, I would do anything to make sure yeah, they felt yeah. okay and safe, you know, and I just, yeah, I felt very um, abandoned because it was more what didn't happen and the, the, the help and the safety um, that it didn't receive. Does that make you now like, you know, to, I think the world we live in is so scary because whilst there's so many great and, you know, moral, amazing human beings and random acts of kindness and there's so much great that happens in this world. In 2021, unfortunately, there's a lot of bad that happens too and, and these things are definitely more common than they should be. Um, as someone who has a younger sister, who, if anyone knows me, they know I adore my younger sister. I'm extremely protective. I remember standing in the back of nightclubs for weeks on end when she turned 18, watching like a hawk. Um, and just like my dad was the same. And, you know, I know how much it frightens me that that's the world that she lives in. And I'm blessed that she has an amazing partner and she has so many great friends and great people around her that that's never been a reality for her. But I know that I, I worry that, you know, in this world, an open drink is an easy target. Someone who's had a few drinks already and maybe isn't as aware as they always would be is, is an incredibly vulnerable target. What does that make you feel like when you go out now and you socialize in Sydney or you socialize, you know, when you go back home to Adelaide or, you know, are you, are you paranoid that something's going to happen? <laughs> I have to laugh because <laughs> I, had, I don't go out anymore. Um, yeah. it's, it's quite funny because mum was telling me um, that if I come home to Adelaide over the weekend, I'll have to, I might have to quarantine. I said, mum, I pretty much quarantine at the moment, working from home. Um, yeah. But jokes aside, when I first uh, came back from the experience, I did notice that. I felt, who can I trust? Um, is everyone going to abandon me? And unfortunately, it's not really a, a healthy way to live. You know, it's just after like a breakup and then you decide you're never going to have a boyfriend again because you're worried about getting your heart hurt. 
you know, these things, these things do happen. Um, and you can look at your situations, just like I know you have with your experiences and say, okay, you know, I can choose to be a, a victim of this, or I can choose to learn from my experiences. So yeah. when I go out now, street smart to make sure I'm keeping myself safe and being careful who I spend time with. Um, I have a lot of uh, situational aware awareness now and a lot of an emotional intelligence around who I spend my time with. Um, whereas before I just hung out with the popular people. Whereas now, you know, I care about people's energy. I care about how they speak to other people, how they treat other people, especially. So I know now I have a lot more conscious control and power over situations like that. But you can never be sure, right? You can never predict the future. Um, and I don't think I, I used to live like that where I never had any friends because I was so scared of abandonment. But I realized it was a really lonely way to live. Um, yeah. So I, and I second that, like the, the power of having great people around you is so important. It's something I speak about a lot because I'm blessed that I've got the most amazing family in the world. I've got some extremely close mates who I could call on for anything but I've got some amazing people outside of those people who have been there for a long period of time, who are meeting in the last year, the last two years, who just like, you know, I've got a crew that I run with early in the morning and at 6am, like the amount of people that put their hands up for a half marathon on a Wednesday morning is ridiculous, but it's so positive to go. It's crazy. I've got a group at this age that want to be positive role models for each other, want to push each other to do amazing things. And, you know, I think for anyone listening, be so strict on who you allow into your life, you know, and it's like you said, after a traumatic experience, you, you learn that the people around you are so important, but don't let it be a traumatic experience that wakes you up to that reality. Mm -hmm. I think start to assess the people around you, ask honest questions of them and ask hard questions of them that mm -hmm. tell you whether you're aligned and whether you're moving in the right direction, because your life will be affected by it. It's true. What they say, the, the five people around you, you know, if they're all doing terrible things, you'll probably be the sixth person to do terrible things. And, you know, it goes the other way too, if they're all on incredible paths to success, great happiness and, and great things in their life, well, you won't be far behind them if behind them at all. So, so important, so important. Talk to me about how all of this has become, was it a catalyst for you to dive into the world of fitness and health? Was fitness and health, obviously you were a dancer growing up, it's obviously ingrained in you in some way, shape or form, but what inspires you to dive into bodybuilding? Yeah. So after that experience, um, I started to have lots of, I guess, awakenings. Um, and in a lot of ways, that whole experience was quite a spiritual awakening for me. Um, and that was actually one of the first things I learned, which was you become the top five people you spend your most time with. And that was like a mirror Right. It was, it felt really symbolic as well at the time. It was like, I was holding this mirror, looking at myself into my life and I was able to see my identity, who I was in a completely new perspective. And you know what I said to myself, Bradley, I said, if those were the type of people I was hanging out with, what kind of things did that say about me and my moral compass? Mm. And this really, it was painful, but my gosh, it was really liberating because I was able at that, at that time to decide was path A going to be to stay silent about it and pretend like nothing happened 
or I was going to say no. You know, I'm, I am powerful enough to move from this experience and, and be the person who I want to be. And so I kind of looked at this uh, concept called Ikigai, which is a Japanese um, meaning for, um, oh gosh, now I'm gonna have to go off the top of my memory, uh, a reason for living, I think it is, and I'm paraphrasing here, meaning for life again. And I looked at, well, what do I love doing? Well, I love helping people. I loved teaching. I liked seeing people grow and, and develop. And I was also in the gym at the time, but of course my lifestyle didn't reflect a healthy person. So I got, okay, so there's something I'm passionate about, something I'm really good at. And I decided that I actually wanted to change industries um, and go into helping people as a personal trainer. Amazing. So in, yeah, and in a lot of ways it kept me going because in the midst of all that healing, there was a lot of pain, you know, and I call that, that time of my life, the valley of despair, because there was a lot of awakenings and they were hard pill to swallows of who I was and the ways I was living um, and anchoring to the health and fitness industry, anchoring to my bodybuilding was one of the most important ways for me to find that purpose and meaning in my life again. And I must say, like, you can tell that you, you keep fit and healthy all the time, even though you don't bodybuild per se now and compete, you keep incredibly healthy. But looking back, I was like, wow, she actually had an amazing crack on stage. Like you were in, in very much peak stage condition and you obviously dedicated a lot of your life to it. But I know people who have competed in bodybuilding for me personally, well, number one, I, I said this the other day on a podcast, I definitely don't have the physique for it. And number two, I definitely do not have the discipline to have that little food and restrain myself so much. I am an eater and Easter prove that if ever. Um, but it's something that I believe would build incredible mental resilience in somebody to go through the journey of bulking up, cutting down, being stage ready, being accountable day on day, week on week. How much did that do for your mental fitness or was it a detriment to it? Well, this is um, quite a journey for me because when I first started competing and full transparency, the reasons why I first started competing was because I wanted to look for a sense of worthiness. You know, I was in a really dark place and I thought, oh, maybe this thing will make me feel good again. So I want to really uh, voice that and just honour that, you know, the reasons why I got into that. And although it's not a horrible, bad thing, because that was what got, got me out of that experience. But I quickly realised because that was fueling my uh, needs for competing, when I wasn't competing, it then led to a lot of sabotaging behaviours because I didn't have the body off-season. And so if I didn't have the body, then I didn't feel worthy. So a lot of sabotaging behaviors, uh, body dysmorphia. So when you look in the mirror, you see something very different to what's actually there. Yeah. Um, a lot of disordered eating. So, you know, carbs are bad and I have to eat clean. So just a very unhealthy way of looking at food. And so I had a conversation with my mentor and this was 20, early 2018 before my last uh, show as a pro and I started to notice this and she created these very thought-provoking uh, questions 
that helped me to see those initial reasons for competing. And that was really powerful for me because then I could redefine that and get on stage when I did last and make it more around a high performing athlete um, and getting on stage to showcase all that hard work. But unfortunately, because I'd spent so many years competing for very different reasons, I created some very strong neurological pathways in my brain for how I saw my body. So then after my last competition, I had a really bad cycle of my body dysmorphia. And instead of saying, oh, I'll just compete again, I went, no, 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 okay. You know, I need to take a pause here from my bodybuilding and really start working on this relationship with myself this relationship with my body um, and really my identity of who I thought I was. Of course. And is that what then obviously spurred the interest in the psychological and the mental side of health and fitness yeah. and the importance of that? And yeah. talk to me about discovering that relationship and the importance of that. Cause I can imagine as someone who's done similar to that in the last year or two um, with a real change in my life and my, the way I look at fitness and health and, the way I've been treating my body. Um, it's powerful stuff. It feels very good, doesn't it? Yeah, really powerful. So this is really where the uh, interest for me went into neuroscience. So I started learning more about neuroscience from, excuse me, right. from a, men a mentor of mine with a coach that I was um, being coached by. Yep. And I started using the uh, models in neuroscience to look at my experience with competing and so neuroscience is the study of your nervous system and within your nervous system there's five survival pathways so yeah. the five survival pathways are fight flight freeze collapse and attach now when you do something like a bodybuilding competition maybe you're preparing for a running event bradley um, maybe you've got something coming up that requires uh, a high stakes of you needing to put in a, a high effort. Yep. What happens is your activation in your nervous system goes up. Maybe you need to plan. Maybe there's lots of movement. Maybe there's lots of um, uh, deliberate uh, exercises you do. There's the training, all the physical stuff, the focus, building relationships, networking, um, there's a lot of external stimulus. And so the stimulus in the nervous system internally has to go up to match the external stimulus. Okay. So you might notice that, that before a race or before a running event, you might get butterflies in your tummy. Maybe your heart rate elevates, maybe you get sweaty palms. And that's an indication that your internal uh, activation is going up, up, up because there's this external perceived uh, demand on the body. Is this, am I following yeah, you? Yeah, definitely. I can relate to all of this. Yeah. So what happens, and this is more in relation to my experience after a bodybuilding competition, what happens when all that external stimulus goes away? You're not posing, you're not doing the nutrition, you're not training two times a day, seven days a week, you're not getting 15,000 steps, um, all of these things that you've got to do to get the job done, they go away overnight. But the activation in your internal nervous system, that doesn't know you've just done a bodybuilding competition or a running event. 
And when there's too much activation in the nervous system, it will have to go into a crash to regulate that. So what goes up, 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 must come down, down, down. And this is where you might hear a bodybuilder talk about post-comp blues, or mm. maybe after a really big event, there's almost like this, oh, like what's my next goal? I feel really lost or a project. I'm not really sure now. I've been focusing on this one thing for so long. And so that would be a indication that maybe there's a collapse. So I feel no energy, I'm zoned out, I'm procrastinating, I can't take care of myself, I feel depressed, I just want to sleep. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense because I know for me personally, post my event, there was like, well, my next marathon's maybe nine to 12 months away. What's next? Like, what do I do? Where do I focus my energy? And I found myself probably getting a little bit lazy or like you said, procrastinating a fair bit. And so that's why it was important for me to find new goals and new things to focus on. So yeah. keep, keep explaining because this is great. I feel like it'd be so relatable for so many people. Huh? And I really want to give an example for how this shows up for modern day men, because this is not just for people who have, you know, these really hectic demanding events um, or bodybuilding competitions. <clears throat> this shows up for a lot of corporate people. This shows up for people running their own business. So an external demand, we get in the car and old Jan in front of us is driving really slow. And people who have perhaps really high activation in their system, what do they do? They toot the horn, maybe they wind down the window and they yell and they pump their fist. And you can feel that in your body, in your nervous system. I used to be a bit of a road rager, right? Heart rate elevated, gripping the steering wheel. That's a very fight part, right? As opposed to someone who kind of like sits there and listens to like a, uh, an episode of the experience with Bradley and like chill and calm and regulated, right? They're good people. They're good people. Keep listening <laughs> to folks. So then they go to work and what happens? Their boss puts uh, a deadline on their table, higher demand of stress. Then maybe they forget to go to a meeting, higher demand of stress. Then maybe their missus calls them and they've forgotten their anniversary, higher demand of stress. Then they realize they've got to drive home and stop past the florist to get the flowers. And now they're late for this other thing and they're stuck in peak traffic again on the way home. So then they come home and their activation in their nervous system has gone up, 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 up. And remember when there's too much activation in the nervous system, there has to be a crash for, in order for the system to come back into homeostasis. And so what happens when they get home? They collapse on the couch and watch Netflix Maybe, and this is what a lot of my clients do, they spend hours scrolling on TikTok, Reels, very numbing behaviours. Um, maybe they will turn to food to satiate those feelings. Maybe it's alcohol because there's so much stress and so they're trying to numb it with alcohol. And so we have all of these experiences showing up for us. And if we don't know how to respond to these external stresses, then our nervous system is just running the show. Now, by knowing this, and this is the really important part, by knowing this and tuning into our nervous system, we can start to create tools to regulate that activation. And then once that's created, those tools for regulation, then your tolerance 
which would be how you can tolerate distress, your tolerance can increase. So for example, you're driving to work and the stress comes up and you can notice it because you're gripping the steering wheel. So something like sitting there and doing some breath work would be one of the mm. best ways to do that. And so then you get to work and your boss puts down the deadline. You go, okay, cool. I got this time. I can get it done. Yeah. Because your tolerance to um, experience that stress is now wider and you have more flexibility rather than a really rigid response where you just go straight into fight or flight. And it's like, <gasps> I got this big deadline. That's, yeah, that's really... It makes so much sense because I, I understand that fully. Something I try to do, because I find for me personally, something that will heighten stress and get me very frantic throughout the course of the day is I'm a really routine driven person around my mornings. Like if my morning routine doesn't go as planned, I, f I find I'm just very frantic and stressed throughout the day. And it's this, I guess, weird relationship with time where I feel like I'm running behind. So if I don't get up at 4.45 a.m. and don't get out and do my walk or my run, jump in the ocean, get my coffee, go home, make my peanut butter and poached eggs on toast and read a bit of my book, I just feel like I'm like far out. The day's thrown out. That's something I'm trying to work like this morning, for example, had a very tiring weekend, just felt a little bit exhausted. And I was like, you know, I'm probably going to take some time in the morning to rest and recover. So I had to really be present in my mind this morning that like I was getting in the studio here, not as early as I would normally be. I went for a haircut. So it was even like, it was even more delayed. And I was like, just chill. Like it'll happen. It's going to happen as it's going to happen today. I had to really think about it. And that's a relationship I'm trying to get better with because going through the back end of last year, working towards, like you said before, that big event or that big goal, which was the marathon everything was routine scheduled and I love that and I love that I was working towards something and the consequence of not being on routine was well you know that you probably can't run 42ks yet so if you don't hit that routine there's a good chance you're not going to be as well prepared so there were consequences for not being on routine or doing what I was supposed to do now it's kind of like well yeah I'm getting back into training I'm getting back into the flow of things but maybe slipping away from a routine isn't going to be too detrimental in a month's time because you're still seven months out from needing to run one. So something I'm trying to work with and create those really healthy habits and relationships again around my routine, my training, my mindset. And it's something that I've got to say, I'm pretty blessed and I feel grateful that it never takes me too long to get back on track with those sort of things. Mm. And really, in a lot of ways, Bradley, what a clever system you have, because if I just break down what you said, you said that when there's this experience of time that feels a little bit different for you, aka your schedule goes off track and there's a different uh, routine to your day, you notice that there's a shift in perhaps your focus, your state of stress, how you experience that day. And so... I mean, what a really clever system you have because your system knows when there's an event, it really likes planning, analyzing. It's a very fight part, go, 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 but integrated, right? Very helpful. Yeah. It gets the job done, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then so after that experience, this part here, this fight part that loves to plan, loves to take action, very assertive and diligent and likes to act is now stepping in to say, 
how can we create this same uh, amount of patterns and routine and action and planning into our every uh, everyday life to create some normality and familiarity in the system so in a lot of ways your system's really clever because it knows how to do that and the reason why it's doing that is because the brain likes pattern it likes the familiarity of knowing what to expect and if it knows what to expect then it can keep you safe right that's why a lot of people find it really hard to achieve like a new goal or a news resolution because they have to change something right and the brain doesn't like change it doesn't like a new pattern that's why they might you know spend a couple of weeks and then they go back to their old ways of being their old, old patterns so looking at our nervous system we can see your nervous system bradley really likes acting it likes being assertive planning diligent analyzing assessing and so you can use that information to say how might I go about achieving this goal? And the how is really important because in today's society, that's very masculine. We're told to yeah. just do it, right? just do it. You wanna do your goal, just eat in a calorie deficit. And it's like, but how do I do that if maybe I'm in a freeze part and I, I can't, I feel stuck. I don't feel steady, I feel frozen. I'm scared to get in the gym. I, I don't know what that's like. So we can look at this question of how might my, my nervous system be experiencing that? And once we have that information, then we can create these tools to regulate and, and create these pathways for uh, a coherence in our body and our nervous system. I like that. I like that. And it makes so much sense to me because you saying all those things now are things that I know in the last week I've been sitting down and looking at and assessing and going, okay, what's, what's this path going to look like now? And exactly what you said, how, how do I get these things done to ensure that in six months time, I'm reflecting back on the six months that has been and go, well, that's how I done it. You know, like the path was clear. Can I ask for maybe the person who's sitting there listening to this or watching us speak right now and can't relate to a nervous system like mine, they're going, well, I'm quite a frantic and crazy individual who can wake up at a different time every day, loves a new challenge or something very sporadic to happen within the 24 hours of each day. What sort of personality trait do you characterize, I guess, characterize, I should say that as, and what are some, I guess, action plans that they can put into place to make sure that whilst they're very sporadic and they love that, they're also getting the most out of their weeks. Mm -hmm. Well, perhaps I can give you, uh, give your listeners a resource that actually would apply for everyone. Yep. Um, because there would be no, I guess, personality or characteristic to describe that person, but there would be a survival pathway, whether that was a, a flight part of <gasps> it all feels too much or a freeze where they, they feel quite, um, uh, numb and they're not able to do any of that and so if we're operating in survival and ideally we don't want to be operating in survival because it can be very irrational and uh, it can be uh, done with the fear part of the brain if it's not integrated what we want to be doing is operating in the front of the brain and the front of the brain is the pfc prefrontal cortex and that's our thinking brain it's got great ideas it's creative it's calm it's collected that's really where we want to be operating most of the time. So one of the best ways we can go about uh, 
operating in the front of our brain and regulating our stress is using things like um, meditation, breath work, ice baths, which I know I saw you do the other day. Ice baths yeah. are a fantastic way to regulate your nervous system um, and almost reset it in a lot of ways. You can look at doing things like EFT, which is emotional freedom technique, tapping. Um, social engagement is really great, really regulating for a system. So spending time with people you love, with good high vibe people. Um, and one thing that's really great as well that I love teaching my, uh, uh, my uh, clients is connecting to their inner child and the things that they like to do when they were younger. So when I was younger, obviously I love dancing. So whenever I feel a little bit stressed, um, I always love to dance, move my body. Maybe I go do a dance class, um, some sort of movement that part of me really loves. And it's really connecting to a bit of a safe space. Um, so for someone else, it might be drawing, painting, rollerblading, singing. It might be like pottery. <laughs> it might be running or bike riding or roller skating or uh, ice skating, swimming, surfing. There's so many lists of things you can do. And for a system that doesn't feel safe and might be in survival, um, doing something that your inner child loves to do is a really good way uh, to regulate stress. You know, it's, it's funny you say that. And I want to touch on that for a minute because I had this conversation the other day with my mom. Anyone knows me, knows I love my mom. She's yeah. an amazing human and she's been, you know, an incredible mother, a, a mother that any kid would be so, so lucky to have. And for me, she's done so much for like her and my dad have done so much for my sister and I and so much for the people around us that they're just absolute inspirations. They are literally the, the parenting handbook for me moving forward when my time comes. But I was speaking to mum the other day and it's, it's a weird time for mum and it's a weird time for dad too, I guess, because, you know, I'm 25 now, I'm off doing my thing and, you know, I'm dependent. So they're always, mum's always, oh, can I cook you some lunch for you to pick up tomorrow? Or can I do this? And I'm like, no, I'm all good, mum, I'm sweet. Like I can handle it. And my sister now, my sister moves out this week, her and a partner move into their place and you know, they're excited. They're taking that next step in their life. And all of a sudden, I guess mum's like, oh, wow, like, I'm still a mum, but I'm not a mum who has dependent children anymore. So mm -hmm. for her, I was talking to her about the importance of like finding that next thing that really consumes all of your time. And I guess if you're listening to this and you're, in a, you're a parent, you should have those things in your life regardless anyways, that are things you love and things that stimulate your, your mental space and, and your nervous system, like we spoke about, that make you happy and, and make you feel like you're working towards something. But for those people that go through that transition in their life and they're now in a new stage, a new chapter, what do you think are some great techniques to find that next thing, that thing that's going to occupy a little bit of your time, that's going to challenge you, that's going to, I guess, take some of that free space? And it's such a hard question. And I guess my, my advice to mum was like, I was like, mum, you need to do this now. You need to go be selfish for yourself and go find these things that you love and you want to put plenty of time and energy into and I was like, and enjoy that journey of finding whatever it is. Do you have any advice for, for someone say like my mom or, or someone else who's listening in that other transitional period of their life? Yeah. So, I mean, just in the interest of speaking to uh, mums um, 
and as well speaking to your mum directly, uh, there's um there's a concept, the one that I mentioned before around ikigai, and uh, these Japanese um, uh, people, and there's this uh, town, I think it's in uh, Okinawa or something like that, and they have the highest rate of longevity. These people live to 100 and 120, and it's because they follow this philosophy of ikigai. And again, it's a reason for being in your life. And you look at what you love, what the world needs, what you're good at, and what you can be rewarded for. And by doing that, you find your passion, your mission, your vocation, and your uh, profession. And whether you, you're directly rewarded for it with money, or it's just a different kind of reward, um, it can be something that uh, whether you're retiring or whether you've been a mum and now your, pet, your, uh, your um, children are off into exploring the world and being independent. Um, finding your ikigai is a really great way to find a sense of purpose, a sense of uh, enjoyment and fulfillment in your life. Um, so I would recommend listening to the book or the audio or the audio book um, and finding out what your ikigai is. Because if you look at myself, my ikigai actually isn't being a coach my ikigai is creativity and self-expression mm -hmm. i was so just going to ask you what it was for you yeah so i use that obviously in the form of coaching but for me this is why i'm so passionate about podcasts because i can use creativity to share my story or my models and neuroscience but i also really get to tune into my self-expression i love that yeah and for, for me those two are really core to my purpose for how I show up you know if we look at someone like Steve Jobs we think that his ikigai was technology but it actually wasn't he was a lover uh, of craftsmanship and he collected these really uh, finely made Japanese teacups and he would obsess over the design details of his uh, different various products and so he became immersed in very curated, finely made things. And then, of course, Apple and Pixar were just his cho chosen ways, his mediums um, to express that. I, lo I love that. And it's, it's funny you say that I had this exact conversation with someone yesterday, this exact conversation where I spoke about, I read, have you read Matthew McConaughey's book? I haven't, no. Great book. So... I sat down and I read green lights and for me, I'm someone who's always been very goal driven. So like my whole life as a kid, very goal driven, um, in my career, my previous career as a real estate agent, goal driven right now in what I do, I feel like I've got very clear, I guess, clear ideas of what I want to achieve and how I want to do it, what I want my life to look like in the future. But I almost had to check myself and sit back and realize what my goals actually were and the difference between a goal and a vehicle to achieving that. And for me, for a long time, I probably identified the podcast or the experience as we call it. And the few of you that listen do, um, as the goal, the goal was to be a hugely successful podcast to have all these amazing listeners, <clears throat> excuse me, all these amazing listeners, and viewers who tuned in every week to the multiple episodes and, and love the messaging within each of those. But sitting down, I realized that 
my goal my whole life in some way, shape or form and ever more clearly and defined right now is just to be a world-class storyteller. So to share my story and the story of others for really positive benefit, whether that be in form of some education, entertainment, inspiration, to make positive changes in people's lives. For me, realizing that the podcast, whilst it's one of the vehicles to help that, isn't the goal. So the vehicles could be the podcast. It could be a stage with a thousand people in the audience, or hopefully one day a hundred thousand. It could be a screen, a TV, YouTube, who knows? And I'm okay with whatever it is. It could be, you know, a paperback book. But for me personally, redefining that the goal was just to be a storyteller has opened up a whole new world of avenue and option for me because stepping back, I'm like, okay, I've been putting so much time and effort into the podcast and that will continue to happen. But what other vehicles can I be putting my energy and effort into to make sure that I have the best chance of achieving that goal? And that's been a really exciting journey, sitting back and starting to plot and plan this next 12 months, six months ahead now as to how I'm going to go about that. So I love what you say there, because I think that is so important, really sitting down and almost being a little bit critical and very self-aware of yourself and what your goals are and making sure they're actually the goals and just not the vehicles. Cause that can be very confusing. I feel for a lot of people. Yeah, really powerful stuff. And you know, this is why I love this whole journey with self-development because it can just create so many pathways for you know such beautiful and really phenomenal concepts that I mean in some ways really do change your life it's it's quite amazing and, and it's within all of us as cheesy as that sounds you know this is all stuff that's who we are and all we have to do is really tune into that and connect with it to find you know these answers that we're looking for <laughs> I could not agree more I'm really interested to hear for you personally I know that whilst you do your coaching stuff, whilst you're very, I guess, adamant and persistent with your own personal self-development, one of the things you do, and I guess it's part of your, your job description is to public speak and to stand on a stage. And as I just said, that's something that I definitely want to do a whole lot more of this year. I set out a goal at the start of 2021, which was to speak on five different stages and share my story, which I'm, I'm excited to start doing as of next month really keen to hear what public speaking does for you personally and how you feel about that journey of stepping in front of, you know, a large group of people, because it's something that not everyone is very confident with. Mm. You know, public speaking was probably one of the scariest things I ever thought in my life. And if you'd asked me four years ago, whether I would do something like that, I would have laughed at you because I was the kid in high school that would have to, at the end of class, do the English oral while no one else was in the room because I was so scared of judgment. Mm. And I went and did a self-development course and I really had to confront that bias with uh, judgment and vulnerability. And we were asked to look at our greatest fears. And of course, my greatest fear was public speaking and then we had to confront that personal bias for what was coming up for us. And it wasn't the actual act of speaking in front of people. It was the vulnerability, which makes sense because when I was vulnerable, when I was 14, you know, I was really traumatized. Definitely. So for me, vulnerability was really scary. And confronting that allowed me to recognize 
that what I'm sharing actually in some ways, even if it's my story, is not about me, right? I'm there to share for other people and change their lives. And even if that was just one person, even if that was just one person, you know, and then they went on to change their lives and then they changed one other person's life that can create a domino effect for other people as well. So I really looked at this act of public speaking and really looked at what is the fear in it? And it was the vulnerability. And of course, I've done a lot of healing in that. And so when I did my first event, which was um, last year in March with Lululemon and The Rising Woman, and it was scary. I remember my nervous system was, you know, a little bit of sweat and the heart rate was pumping, right? Of course, it was super real. I wasn't just then immune to, <laughs> to the fear, but I was able to anchor myself and really ground myself into uh, the overarching theme, which was I'm here to serve other people. And of course, there's going to be some nerves coming up because you're sharing a lot of your story and there is vulnerability in that. And I guess that just makes you human and really can be a part of your message, which is we're all here having a human experience and it doesn't need to hold you back from your dreams and your hopes and your aspirations. So really, that was such an important thing for me was remembering the purpose for why I was there. And reminding myself that even if that was just one person that was listening, that got an aha moment, then I'd done my job. <laughs> one of my favourite quotes is Mother Teresa. And of course, I'll paraphrase this. I won't hit it word for word. But she says that not everyone can change the world, but we can all change the world of one person. And I think that's so so powerful and so important that, like you said, that domino effect is is highly underrated and it's something that I think in my original message to you I sent like if we can change the world of one person well we've done our job and I've got no doubt that our conversation here today will do that and as you said like that vulnerability I'm someone who growing up was never you know plenty of my schoolmates and and longtime friends and family friends will be listening to this and I was the guy that was on the other extreme loved to be in front of the crowd love to be on stage because it's just who I was like I was always the guy that was putting on a show or performance at home or you know I'd do the public speaking at school and wanted to be the guy that played the main character in the end of year assembly I was speaking with an old school friend Maka Garado about that the other day and she recalled I went to a Christian school a private school and she spoke about the time that I played Jesus on the stage for three hours because I wanted the main role <laughs> and it's funny looking back at that and sitting where I am now and going well, you know, I guess it's not so co confusing or surprising as to why I've ended up doing what I'm doing. But for me, the, the probably the most powerful moment in front of a group of people, and it wasn't a large group, it was only about 100 people, was at the end of my event last year and standing there, finished the event, absolutely exhausted, getting up off the ground and everyone was clapping and, you know, giving me a bit of praise and a bit of love and really nice special moment and having my family and everyone around. I just kind of had everyone looking at me and I thought, well, I guess I'm going to give a speech and I'd planned to say a few words. I didn't expect it would be so quickly after the race, but it just purely come from the heart. And for me, it's the most special moment. It's, it's actually the most special video I've got of my, in my whole life. It was the best day of my life and particularly the best moment of my life where I'm able to watch that back and see how emotional it was. My family was crying. A lot of my mates were upset and, you know, tears of joy. 
I guess. And for me, looking back on that and being so vulnerable in that moment, it's so nice to look back on because you understand the power of that and the power that not only has for you, but for the people around you. And so for everyone listening, you know, you don't have to stand on a stage and share your story. You don't have to sit behind a mic and share the story of others or be vulnerable to the world. But if you can find at least one person in your space that you're comfortable to be vulnerable with, oh man, that's powerful stuff. And it's stuff that will personally change your life not even hearing other stories, but being able to speak on yours. Because when you speak and you, and you share it with someone else in the most vulnerable and I guess almost carefree where you're being who you are because that's, that's you in that way, um, that's stuff that once you do it one time, it becomes very addictive and you'll never stop. So shout out to all my mates for listening to my deep and meaningful stories all the time. Mm-hmm. And you know something that's really important in what you just shared here is that, and this is something that I learned from Brene Brown, who's a a shame researcher, and she talks about vulnerability quite a lot. And the reason why people have such a hard time being vulnerability is because of the shame and the fear and the guilt that comes with that as well. You know, Mm. if I share this and they don't understand, or I'm told that I'm being too soft or, Um, I'm overreacting, you know, anything that comes with that, those fear-based stories. And so what happens when you create that space for vulnerability, what it does is it, 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 it gets rid of that shame around it. And so you actually allow other people to be vulnerable with you. So yeah, really speaking to people who are listening and if they're wanting to be vulnerable or they're wanting someone else, their partner, their, their friends, their family to be vulnerable with them, that you can open that pathway by being vulnerable with them first and creating and normalizing that, right? Creating a space that's open um, and loving and, uh, and, um, and accepting so that other people feel safe enough to be vulnerable with you. I think that's so important. That could be one of the biggest takeaways of this whole episode is create that space for the people around you because that plays a big part in them opening up I feel like I could sit here and talk to you for days, but I'm sure you've got places to be later on today. I'm sure you've got other work that you'll want to get done. I'm going to end the conversation here, but I'm going to end it with something, I guess, something new. We'll call it a new, new little subtopic of the experience. It's something I've been doing. You might see it on my Instagram story every day. Quite often I pester um, the crew that work downstairs beneath the experience HQ at Lee and me, the cafe, And I quite often pester them for some wise words and I like to put them on the spot. And I guess I'm putting you on the spot now. Whilst there's been many wise words throughout today's episode, maybe just a few that you feel like you remind yourself of every day or you remind yourself of when you're having one of those moments where you need a little bit of that eternal wisdom. (laughs) Uh, He loves the hard questions, ladies and gents. (laughs) There was something that really stayed with me through my whole um, journey with healing uh, four years ago. And I think I shared this with you through a voice memo when we connected. Um, And it was only at the precipice do we evolve. And for me, that's been a huge overarching driving factor for anything I experience, whether I'm... uh, 
stuck with work or ending a relationship or going through trauma or lost or unsure, those words of wisdom really allow me to go when I'm at the edge and that edge state and things feel like the world is collapsing around me, there's always a space to evolve at that precipice. What is this experience teaching you? And when you're in that valley, right, maybe you don't know what that, that lesson is and maybe you don't know the inside of whether it's God or the higher power or the universe, whatever that's teaching you. But when you can go through that and stay with that experience and look at this as a way to teach you to grow and learn, you can open up pathways to overcome those traumas or those fears or the adversity that you're experiencing. You know, and the, the aim is never to heal yourself or become miraculously better. It's actually a never ending journey where you keep growing and you keep evolving and you keep developing. That's why they call it self-discovery, not self-discovered. Yeah. <laughs> and a healing journey, not healed, because it's an ongoing journey where you keep learning and it can be painful and hard, but my gosh, it's, it's ultimately so beautiful. Mickey Casa, you're an incredible storyteller. You're an incredible person. I feel so privileged to be sitting here having this conversation with you, but also to be able to record that and share it with the world. I want to make sure that today isn't the last little bit of Nikki that everyone here from the experience audience hears. I'm going to make sure that your social links are all in today's show description, as well as those links for um, some of those organizations or safe places for people to be reaching out who are suffering from traumatic experiences or suffering from trauma in the present. Thank you so much for being here. It means a lot to me, as I'm, I'm sure I said in our messages when we connected to do this to anyone who gives the time to come on the show and share their story. Um, I'm eternally grateful. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And, and likewise, very grateful to have this space to feel safe and open up and share my experience thank you my absolute pleasure everyone subscribe give those five star ratings and those raving reviews we love it tell your best mates your mom your dad your dog play it at home <laughs> put it on as you drive to work and get stress-free stop gripping that steering wheel so hard and yeah just enjoy these conversations we have because i definitely enjoy sitting here hosting them big love to everyone cheers